Guest today is Sean Coyle. Sean is a returning guest. He's one of our most popular guests ever. He is, of course, a Sander trainer and he's an expert in all things sales leadership. Sean, you're very welcome to the podcast. Welcome back again. I appreciate you having me back again. I'm surprised after the last one you would even bother. So. Well, we, we thought we'd do it again and just verify. We'll see what happens. Sure, So tell me a little bit, Sean, about uh, what's, what's the general state of play of sales leadership today that you're seeing amongst your clients? What are the kind of typical issues you're seeing bubble up again and again? So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the word leadership, right? And, and, I, and I think that word is kind of getting a little fuzzy. Right. You know, is leadership authority is leadership responsibility is leadership accountability. And and, you know, as, as we see organizations bring in leaders, right, or promote leaders. I think a, a, a challenge is new leaders view that title as authority and, and not necessarily as responsibility and accountability. Mm. Um, and, and so I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I, I think there's a big difference between having the authority of a leader, but then having the accountability of a leader. That's interesting. Um, and, and I'll throw it back as a question as well, because I've only begun, begun to notice this in the last few years is that in every sales organization, you have reps and sales leadership. Nobody's managers anymore. Everybody's sales leadership and and I understand leadership, but, but, but reps lead as well. They lead their business. They lead when it comes to taking control and bringing that authority voice with their prospects and customers. So, so you're right. I think it is. You're right. It is quite fuzzy because now we're saying it could apply to everything, not necessarily to those who are organizing and structuring teams. And uh, so maybe we need to do a little bit of dissecting. So let me, tell, t- let me ask you this. When you come in contact with individuals in management positions in an organization and your gut sense tells you that that's a, that's a leader, what is it that you're seeing and noticing and observing? Yeah, so I, I think... Uh... They, they, they've been able to put two things in place, strategy and process, right? So, so strategy is kind of the what, right? And, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, and it could be around anything. It could be around the operations of the business. But I think, I think strategy defines what process defines how. And so I think if we put strategy in place but don't have the process to kind of support that strategy, I think a leader runs the risk of being a rescuer now, right? Because now they're the ones executing on the process, right? Or, you know, tribal process that's in their head rather than, you know, here's our direction. Here's our course of action that we need to take. And here are the repeatable steps necessary for people to succeed in certain roles. And and so I think strategy without process, right, you know, kind of forces a, a leader to get into the weeds, right? And no mm. longer lead an organization so we can overuse all of the, the sports analogies, right? 
you know, the great football coaches in Europe, the great American football coaches, basketball coaches. Here's what we know none of them have ever done in the role of a leader. They've never stepped onto the field. They've never taken the penalty kick. They've never called the audible at the line of scrimmage and threw the football. They never shot the foul shot. They never did any of those things. In fact, if they did, they're getting removed. That's interesting. Yeah, they may be screaming from the sidelines, but that's it. There's a line. They don't cross. Yeah, they, they've developed a playbook, right? And then within that playbook, they've worked on, here's how we will execute in that playbook. Yeah. So what happens then, you'll see, and just to continue the sports analogy a little bit, where you'll see those coaches who lose the dressing rooms, all of a sudden... Players are no longer playing from them anymore. And, and you can tell because it's reflected in the results. What happens in those situations? Because that's not about playbook. We would assume that their, their ability to put together a playbook and understand how the game plays and tactics and strategies is the same. But at some level, nobody's following them anymore. Yeah, so I, I think it, it, it comes down to... And, and I heard, uh, and, and we actually had a great speaker a, a week or so ago... Uh, our Sandler management class, uh, Vice Admiral John Byrd. He was from 2010 to 2012. He was the commander of the Seventh Fleet for the United States Navy. In essence, the front lines of the Pacific Ocean, right? You know, uh, you know, over 20,000 personnel rolled up into his operational leadership, right? So nothing ever happened in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, nothing, nothing ever, ever happened, happened there. there. But, but he, had a, he had a great quote, and he said, vision without execution is daydreaming. Execution without vision is a nightmare. And so when you talk about losing the locker room, right, if we kind of go to that, you know, we, we're starting to you know, layer analogies on. If I lose the locker room, it's I, maybe I've not created or developed that shared vision, right? Are we all moving in the same direction, or do I have... 32 players with 32 individual visions, and they're just trying to get theirs, right? And so I think it's, it's do we have that shared vision, and then have we created a process to execute where everybody can succeed in that vision? Does that make some sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious then what happens in sales where sales leaders are turned over at a pretty rapid rate, you know, that the average tenure is less than two years of a sales leader. What's happening there? Somebody loses confidence in them. And if so, why? Yeah, I, I almost wonder if it's the individual themselves loses confidence in themselves first. Right? You know, it, mm. is, you know because maybe what, what we're not helping leaders do is actually develop their own leadership playbook, right? It's so easy to develop a sales playbook. Right? And so, you know, that sales playbook starts, let's just oversimplify it, Paul, but it starts with my goal, right? What's my quota for the year? And then, you know, what's the average size of an opportunity? How many opportunities do I have to close to hit that? And then I, you know, go the other direction. You know, how many, you know, how many first meetings do I have to, you know, develop? So it's, you know, that recipe for success is there, right? People look for the magic bullet in sales, have a disciplined cookbook, right? Stick to that cookbook. That's one of the magic don't know that that leadership cookbook is there. And, you know, I talk to a lot of my leaders. Help me understand, you know, how much time do you have in your calendar to debrief 
a salesperson's call? How much time is scheduled in your calendar to strategize for the week? How much time is in your calendar for holding the team accountable to certain behavioral expectations as laid forth when they right? Do we have that cookbook? You know, and, and, and I know at Sandler we use the term cookbook. I had a client back a year or so ago just really clarify the concept of cookbook to me. And, you know, she said, if, if somebody says, Sean, bake a cake, right? Okay. Well, guess what? I know what a cake looks like. I know what a cake is supposed to taste like. I have a general idea as to the ingredients that go into baking a cake. So I could probably follow my general idea and I'm going to screw it up. So what's my first move? I, I go to my recipe and I say, all right, so I need X cups of oil, right? X cups of flour, X cups of water, this number of eggs. And so what I have to do is I have to figure out, A, do I have the inventory, right? Do, do I have these things? If not, I've got to go to the store and get them, right? And then once I know I have the ingredients and the proper amount of ingredients, I have to follow the instructions as it relates to um, combining these ingredients in the appropriate, you know, I can't put the water in before the egg. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's a sequence of events. And if I follow that sequence of events, I'm likely going to end up with a cake that looks and tastes like a cake. I don't know, again, we can define that cookbook for salespeople. I don't know that we are doing a great job supporting our leaders, giving them that cookbook for success. Okay. I'd like to just test that a little bit with you, if you don't mind, because I get it with cakes. And it's very repeatable. Um, when it comes to people and managing and leading people where you've done all that, let's say I, I, I understand in terms of the skills and experiences and attitudes people need to have in order to be successful in a particular role and what they need to be trained on in terms of process and tactics and so on, I get that. But then what happens is somebody comes to work one day and they're... they're they're off form. Their, their relationship with their better half is falling apart, for example, or somebody's sick, or somebody said something to them that upset them, whatever it is. Where's the, where's the cookbook for that? Because these are the things that come out of left field, that throw every, all the, the plans and all of the good intentions and all the recipes and cookbooks. These are the things that come in. It's like... You're making your cake and suddenly the electricity goes out of the house or somebody comes and opens the oven door when you're not watching or the dog comes and eats half. You know what I'm saying? There's all of those unknowns and the unknown unknowns that, that screw it up for us. Is there a cookbook for that? No, I, you know what? It's, 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 uh, I mean, I, I love where you're going with that because I think the answer is yes. Right? And I think it comes down to A... Have we developed, you know, much the way we ask salespeople to create and, and, and build that environment of trust and comfort and credibility, right? Which gives the prospect a forum to open up, right? And maybe share with the salesperson things they've never shared with other salespeople before, right? That's the essence of, you know, understanding the opportunity, becoming an advisor. I think we can do that as well as a leader, right? Is what are we doing to purposefully create that environment that allows people to come to us and to open up, right? And, and gives them the forum 
that when I do open up, when I am struggling, if I am going to be vulnerable, I'm not going to be criticized. I'm going to be supported. I'm going to be directed. I can be critiqued. To me, there's a big difference between criticism and critiques, right? It's a similar word, but I think they're vastly different, right? And, and, and you know, if, if we even go to where I think David Sandler himself, right? I mean, this is where he mastered, uh, you know, interpersonal relationship skills. It's transactional analysis, right? I mean, the cookbook for dealing with those situations is in those ego states, Right? I mean, I have to make sure that I maintain that adult to adult, but knowing that if somebody comes to me because someone's sick or somebody said something to them that made them uncomfortable, but they're coming from that child ego state, how do I bring them to adult, right? How do I not criticize them? How can I support them and be a nurturing parent, but ultimately get them refocused, right, and, and, and down the right path? And, and so, I mean, I think the first question a leader has to ask is, have I developed a, an environment within my organization that allows people to forum to actually come to me when they're struggling and come to me immediately? Or are they expecting a slap on the wrist? Yeah. This might be worth exploring a little bit further in depth. I'm conscious that not everybody would be familiar listening to this with transaction analysis, first of all, but in terms of creating that environment where we don't want to, or we want to avoid the temptation to create an adapted child uh, environment where we, we, we create that dependency, that's the result of that, that we want to be able to enhance the problem-solving capabilities, developing their little professor. And, and, and But maybe, just for our listeners who are not familiar with it, maybe you could just spend a few minutes teasing out, because when people hear things like critical parent or nurturing parent, they may misinterpret that we're only using them as labels or as Byrne used them as labels to describe uh, interactions, what they look like and sound like. And maybe from a leadership point of view, you could tease that out a little bit further. Sure. So, I mean, if, if I just look at the three ego states, parent, adult, child, right? It's where, I mean, it's the essence of where we all communicate from based on a circumstance, our reaction to something. And, and so, you know, the, the, the parent ego state tends to be well, it, there's, there's two flavors, right? There's the critical parent, the nurturing parent. The critical parent, this is what a critical parent sounds like. If I'm a little six-year-old and I'm running at a swimming pool and I fall and I skin my knee, right, and I come up crying, the critical parent says, you see why the sign says no running on the pool deck? But that's what a critical parent sounds like, right? Where a nurturing parent says, oh, sweetheart, please, let's get you an ice cream and a Band-Aid, right? And so, you know, there, there's... There's rarely a place for that critical parent. Right? And I think as leaders at times, because there's this misconception, if I go back to the beginning of our discussion, right, you know, leadership gives me authority. Sometimes authority manifests itself as a critical parent. Right? When, 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 when salespeople right, are struggling, when, when leaders are struggling, there's going to be moments where they're very eye-centric. That's the child ego state. Right? There's, there's, you know, I mean, the adaptive child is just going to kind of roll over and, all right, I'll do what you tell me to do, right? Not critically think through. The rebellious child's going to push back, right? I'll do the exact opposite of what you're telling me because you're upsetting me, right? And so, you know, what we're looking for ideally is that adult-to-adult -adult dialogue, right, which is unemotional. And I think a lot of times bad communication comes from, you know, the blending of emotions, Right? Anger and frustration, right? They don't go well together. 
right? Sadness and, 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 and fear, right? They don't go well together. And if we can have, begin to create these adult-to-adult discussions, I can be a more effective coach. I can be better at holding people accountable, right? I can, I, uh, you know, I can, I can take a deeper dive on what motivates an individual to want to be successful rather than just understanding what happens on the surface. Mm. I'm curious to know what kind of topics come up a lot with your clients because yours correct me if I'm wrong a lot of the companies you work with they're not the fortune 100 big SaaS technology companies that might have a very specific type of culture in their people that you're you're more kind of mid-sized companies that and and I'm curious to know what that looks like differently, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from, because a lot of the, the the issues I hear with sales leadership when it comes to the larger companies is that they tend to attract people who kind of see sales as just something they're going to do out of college for a couple of years, but they're not serious about it, and they want all the perks, they want the hammocks in the corner and the big bean bags and the coffee machines and all the free snacks and they, their, their, their feelings get hurt very, very easily. And so managers, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, is where I see them is that a lot of stuff is then delegated up to managers. I've seen it where <laughs> I was doing some work with a company and I was going in for two hours every week. The first three weeks, <laughs> and this had never happened before, I was complained every single week for, th- for three weeks. But And it was like a story I told, oh, you can't tell that story because that hurts our feelings, right? And I'm not going to go into the story, it doesn't matter, it's one I've been telling for years. Um, but the, but here, the point was, nobody came, they didn't come to me and said, hey, listen, Paul, I think your story was a little bit off. They didn't take ownership of it. They went and to their manager and then their manager had to come to me. And I'm kind of thinking, you're not helping these people, you're... you're, you're, you're conditioning them to be dependent on you and you are creating this environment which is soft and and soft doesn't go well with sales because while most people you're going to interact with are are, are good people every now and again you're going to be dealing with a prospect who's having a bad day and 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 you got to suck it up and so I see a lot of that in those organizations I'm just wondering if, if, if it's just me or you see them as well. Is it part of the modern workforce? And I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of modern management challenges. And so, you know, Paul, as trainers, one of our primary responsibilities is to transfer knowledge and transfer it in such a way where people can execute on that knowledge. So is, that, is that a fair statement, right? Fair statement. Uh, and, and, and I think that's a similar role of a leader, right? Is I have to transfer knowledge. I have to, uh, you, know, you know, transfer expectations. I have to transfer, motivate, right? There's, I mean, there's, so if we're in the role of transferring knowledge, I think one of our roles is to make sure, and it is going to be the modern workforce, but I think we have to adapt because I think we, we have to do is we have to protect the audience. Right? So as a trainer, I have to protect the audience. Because if I'm not protecting the audience, I put them in a moment where they're going to be not okay and they're no longer going to be receptive to my transfer of knowledge, regardless of my intent. Right? And so, but if, if, if the environment is such that they're not willing to come directly to me, I have to own that. Right? Well, what have I done? 
right? What have, what have, you know, what have I done as a leader that keeps somebody from coming to me saying, I'm really afraid of my next three months, right? What am I doing that's, keep, where, where did I create that barrier intentionally or not, right? And, and I've been looking a lot into, you know, just the concept of intent. You know, as leaders, we are judged by actions, not intentions. As trainers, we're judged by our actions, not our intentions. So we may, and I'll just go to your story, right? We may tell a story that we've been telling for years, but have we inspected whether or not it's tone deaf at this point in time, right? And it's not a function of, you know, cowering to the modern workforce. It's a function of pivoting and changing and being aware and, and I've had some great conversations with a lot of different people, even around this idea of unintended, you know, unintended consequences, mm. right? And, and there's been a lot of studies by sociologists over the decades, you know, way, dating back to the 1200s on the concept of unintended consequences, right? Things that we do that have a, a, an end result that was unexpected, sometimes positive, more often negative. And, you know, unintended, the source of unintended consequences may be things simple as ignorance, right? I just mm. don't know. Mm. Um, you know, it could be, you know, what I'll simply call the, 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 the Popeye philosophy. I am who I am, right? It's the way I've always done it. Well, those have unintended consequences. And so, I mean, I think as a leader, we have to be looking at what are the unintended consequences of our actions? What's the unintended consequence of rescuing a salesperson? on a sales call, right? What's the unintended consequence of, of you know, being hard on somebody because that's the kick in the pants you think that they need, but it may be the exact opposite of what they perceive. And I don't know if that makes any sense, right? But, you know, if, if, if you know, our audience, the audience is listening, and I think as leaders, whether we're trainers or salespeople or sales managers or CEOs, we want that environment that we know our people are going to be supported, they feel supported, they're trusted, right? We're allowed to criticize or critique without hurting feelings. What's that called within the Sandler lexicon? Upfront contracts, right? Do we have good upfront contracts? Are we asking all the right questions for all the right reasons? And do we work from a position of sympathy or empathy? And there's a big difference between those, mm -hmm. right? Sympathy is manifested in a word, right? Um, you know, I, I, I stood in line for four hours at the airport. Ah, oh, that must have been terrible. Did you get a snack, right? I mean, that's sympathy. Empathy requires action, and the action it requires, it requires me to act in my head to connect the dot and find a similar experience. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share. I have a very good friend. You know him, Joel Burstein. Uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Sandler trainer. Um, he, he has an African-American uh, mother and a, uh, a Jewish father, right? Joel Burstein. And so when he first moved to Pittsburgh, I had the pleasure of working with Joel and kind of mentoring him a little bit. And, you know, he said, you know, I remember walking into a, 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 like a cigar smoker uh, networking event, you know, first time in Pittsburgh. And if you know Joel, you know, he came from Miami, he went to a military school in Virginia. You know, he walks into a room, he looks like a million bucks, right? I mean, you know, perfectly attired. I mean, like, just, you know, he's, he's got a, you know, just, and he's just a great human being. He said, I walked into a room at my first, you know, cigar smoker networking event, and when I opened up the door, there were 35 
you know, middle-aged white guys smoking cigars, and all 35 heads turned, and I swear to God, the room went silent, right? That's what he felt, mm. right? And, and so we've talked about this. This would be me being sympathetic. Geez, Joel, that was uncomfortable. What cigar did you smoke that night, right? I mean, you know, moving on from the discomfort. Here's empathy. Don't, I mean, certainly not the same experience. I know when I moved to Mexico when I was a child, I was seven years old, I walked into a private Mexican school, and I remember opening up the door as a, you know, in second grade, and when I opened up the door, everybody knew I was not Mexican. Everybody knew I was the foreigner. Everybody, and all heads turned. I don't know what you felt like, but I know how I felt that day. That's empathy, where I had to take the time and the action to connect the dots. And so I think leaders tend to work more from a sympathetic perspective rather than an empathetic perspective. And if we work from empathy, perhaps we're going to begin to open up the lines of communication more effectively to do the things that we need to do as leaders, coach and mentor and hold people accountable and motivate. What I'm hearing is in that is that sympathy seems to be a kind of an intellectual process. It's like, I understand where empathy is an emotional process. And I'm wondering, could, could even, could, that you can, and I'm guessing this, I wanted to test it, is that you can find empathy even in silence, where somebody is relating that to you, that you can just be still and be silent and communicate emotionally with them to not let, let it's not a tactic, it's not to let them know, it's to make them feel heard. Paul, you're 100% correct. It doesn't require me to say anything. Mm. What it requires me to do is make the connection, right, right mm. up here in my head. And, and in a way, can I find an experience in my life that made me feel like that person has expressed that they're feeling? That's empathy, right? Is, you know, and it doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to be, you know, you know an African-American walking into an all-white room. Or, right? It doesn't have to be that. But it can be yeah. something where <laughs> yeah. I felt isolated. I felt yeah. different. Yeah. I felt, you, yeah. know, you know, not part of the group, if yeah. you will. Try, try being a, a, a middle-aged guy going to a, a mom's group where they're getting together after dropping kids off at school, for example. And you're going right. along, oh, these networks where they'll go and they'll chat and you're the only guy there. I think that, that can feel the same. It's, it's basically being the outlier, the stranger whose face or culture just doesn't always fit in into the group and how that just feels. Um, Interesting. All right. I, but there's something else I wanted to just pick up on you before we move on is you, you talked about support. And my, my question was, I guess, is where's the line and where are the lines between leader and followers, between managers and, 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 and their staff? In, for example, you want to be supportive for sure. But as we know, even in from transaction analysis terms that too much support, too much of that nurturing parent is smothering and it actually robs people of the opportunity to grow. And I think that's where I was coming from with the example I gave wasn't so much of what I said. What I said in hindsight was off, was a little toned up. And I found that out when I came home and my wife and daughter were there and I said, I tell you this happened to me today. Just wanted to get your reaction and I'm, <laughs> I'm expecting to, them to turn to me and saying, oh, Dad, they're, they're, they're idiots. <laughs> I told them the story. And I went, 
you're what? <laughs> and in that moment, I went, okay, all right. But that's not the, the point is then is that the manager feels, the manager feels like they're supporting the staff. But in my mind, they're actually robbing them of a huge opportunity to, to A, first of all, confront an uncomfortable situation, but then also give that other person the opportunity to say, kid, you know what? It was off. Shouldn't have done that. And, 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 and that, that, was, that was taken away from them. And the, the manager did that, not, not intentionally. Not having, I'm not beating up on the manager. I'm just saying there's a line there where maybe the manager has to say, well, look, when, when you went to Paul and, and you explained to them that you felt the story was a little bit off, how did he respond? Well, I didn't go. Should, should we go and have a chat with him? Even if it's that, even if it's less we go. So they feel supported, but at the same time they're not. And I'm just wondering you know, how often those opportunities come up for development and growth that we miss out on because the expeditious thing is, let me take care of it for you. Well, and you said it, right? Expeditious thing, path of least resistance. Let me go do it. Uh, and, and I think the, the, the way we can avoid that path of least resistance sometimes is in the boundaries that we create, right? The, the, the upfront contracts that we use with our people and, and personal example, uh, I mean, I've got three children now or 15 and, uh, and you know, Paul, you, you've, kind of, in a way, you know, been part of their growing up, right? When we first met, I didn't have any kids. Now I've got a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old. Yeah. Who knew? How, how uh, many will you have by the time one of us shuffles <laughs> off? That's what I want to know. <laughs> but, um, you know, and they, 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 they've always participated in athletic endeavors and, you know, basketball and baseball and football and lacrosse. And, and so, as a parent, right, as a leader, we don't want to see our people suffer, right? We don't want to see them in pain. And so at times, it's easy for us, it's most expeditious for us to say, I will eliminate that pain for you on your behalf, right? I become the rescuer. But what I've done is I've become the enabler. And so, you know, when, when you know, my son first came to me frustrated on his basketball team and he says, Dad, you know, and he was... Sixth grade, seventh grade, says, Dad, I think I should be playing point guard on our basketball team. Son, I, I don't know that I completely disagree with you, but let's talk about why you haven't been, right? And then what your responsibility is moving forward. And, and I said, listen, here's the one thing your mom and I will never do. We will never speak on your behalf to a coach, ever, right? It's just never going to happen. And uh, I said, so if you believe that you should be the point guard on your basketball team, you will have to go to your coach. I will coach you on what to say and how to say it. I'll help you build the talk tracks. But you're ultimately going to go to him by yourself, and you're going to say, Coach, I think I should be playing point guard. What do I need to do to earn that right? Well, it took him about six weeks to have the conversation, right? Because, it, you know, but he ultimately had the conversation. Mm. So I think, you know, it's it's – you know, are, are we setting good upfront contracts and boundaries in the way we're, you know, is it easier for me as a leader to simply go to the prospect and fly in as the executive and close the deal or coach you how to not make that mistake 12 more times down the road? Right. And, and you know, I, I've kind of been using this 
you know, if I'm stocking groceries at a grocery store, is it smarter for me to take the big jars of pickles and put them on the low shelf? Or do I always want to be picking up the phone saying, pick up, you know, clean up on aisle six, which is easier. <laughs> a lot easier just to stock them on the low shelf first rather than always going, clean up aisle six, clean up aisle six. Yeah. Yeah, it is difficult. And I wonder as well, as you were talking and using the, the parent analogy of leadership, something else popped into my mind, which was, I can imagine this scenario, because I've seen it play out too, is where something happens to the kid in school, a teacher picks on them, for example, or it could be somebody else. And they come home and they tell the parent. And the parent then, really, the action they take is almost, the, it's based on them living out some past experience where a teacher said something to them and now is their opportunity to march into that school and show them they're not afraid anymore and i think that can happen too and, and people are all often aware of it and uh it's another 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 one of those moments where opportunities are lost because again more of lack of awareness i think yep yeah. yeah, lack of awareness, lack of expectations, right? And, yeah. You know, expectations on how yeah. we're supposed to interact with each other. And yeah. The... So what are some of the other topics that, are, that, that come up with the sales leaders you work with that they, they bring to you or they bring up for discussion in the classes you run? So I, I, a big one, seemingly in the last year, maybe a year and a half, has really been how do I get my people to do it the right way? Is it in their way or the right way? Well, well and, and, and I think in a pre-agreed upon right way, right? I mean, okay. if it's, you know, if, if, if as, as simple as, you know, identifying the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how in a decision-making process, right? Well, you know, I think salespeople miss that a lot, right? I mean, they get a they you know they they get a third of the story on the who, a third of the story on the when, the where, the why, the how, the what, right? And and it feels mm -hmm. like a full story when they start to add up all those percentages. And, and you know, in debrief, you know, managers will recognize, well, you missed this, you missed that, right? I mean, now mm -hmm. that the deal has imploded upon us, right? We we now see all the blind spots, we see all the things that we could have done wrong. And and, and I don't know that that so leaders, in my opinion, seem to be struggling with how do we get our people to simulate more effectively, right? Or, you know, you know, we're laying out the game plan, right? Here's the strategy. I'm going to go back to a sports analogy, Paul. That's practice, right? And, you know, the, the higher up in the, you know, the, the levels in, in any athletics that you go, practice is about strategy, right? the execution of strategy. What people do away from practice is how they will execute. Uh, do I go to practice and then I would come home and I sit on my couch, I eat ice cream, and I watch Netflix? I'm probably going to sit on the bench longer than I would like to sit on the bench. Or am I going to practice and am I coming home and am I doing a 15-minute workout? Or you know, am I reading the playbook? Or am I practicing my foul shots? Am I doing that separately? And, and, I, and, and one of the things that I'm seeing that leaders are having a hard time doing is finding forums to have to deliberately practice areas where they've identified gaps in execution. Hmm. But we are conditioned. It's just human nature for the path of least resistance. Take a, 
maybe, I won't say it's vulgar, but take a, a situation that we've all had at one stage or another where you're sitting in a car on a long journey and you've been drinking bottles of water along the way and now you need to go to the toilet and you're, you're at this stage now your legs are crossed and you can't focus on anything else but there's nowhere to stop there's nowhere to stop and all you can think about is now you're beginning to move your hip muscles just trying to right to, to, to keep it in and and <laughs> and maybe half an hour beyond the point at which you're ready to burst you find a, a place where you can you can uh, let let nature take its course and the, the 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 pain in the moment beforehand then coupled with the the pleasure then afterwards nothing nothing and that i have zero motivation right now to find a a bathroom anywhere it's done i'm re you know it's relieved and and life is a lot like that and when, when I get home from work, I don't have to talk to strangers anymore. I don't have to pick the phone up or I don't have to write those and research people, do all that kind of crap. Now I can just watch Netflix. That, the Netflix is just like the, 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 the bathroom relief. It's just like, just sit there. It's brainless TV. I can eat an ice cream. We're, we're, we're programmed to do that. It's just how the human, the, the, the whole way the dopamine is set up and, and the reward centers in our brain, they're there for a reason. How do you fight nature? I think it's recognizing the importance of, of the journey, right? The, the importance of actually experiencing a little bit of that short-term pain for long-term payoff. Um, I'll give a very simple example, and it's a, it's a ridiculous example, but, you know, if, if anybody's ever watched The Wizard of Oz, right? Dorothy, upon her arrival in, you know, the land of Oz, was told immediately, all you have to do is click your heels three times and you can go home. So her path of least resistance was presented to her right then and there upon arrival. She went through the journey. And it was a difficult journey, right? But it was a journey that, you know, had great experiences. She learned a lot, right? She, she helped herself. She helped others grow. And even scratched her head at the end. She said, why didn't you tell me? She said, I did tell you. You weren't ready to listen. And so, I mean, I think different people will come to a different point in their time where they're ready to listen and say, maybe the journey is something I do need to go through. Um, I know there are plenty of circumstances. You know, at our Sandler conferences, at our regional meetings, I tune out, right? And then, you know, I might hear, you know, Paul say something, you know, a year later. Oh, my God, Paul, that was great. Can you say that again? And Paul says, Sean, I've said that to you like 14 times in the last six months. But today I was ready to hear it, right? And, and so I think, you know, as an individual, you know, does it mean that we come home from a hard day and we immediately simulate all sales scenarios through, you know, bedtime? No. But find moments, right? Find pockets. Listen, we all know we engage in the activities of creative avoidance. So if I'm going to creatively avoid certain aspects of my selling career at times, I might as well learn something. Mm. Right, so if I don't want to make my 30 minutes worth of cold calls, maybe I don't listen to, you know, 30 minutes of cold calling podcasts. And, and yeah. you know, so I, I think we're all going to come to that conclusion and, you know, that I'm willing to go put the effort in. I'm willing to do the dirty work, the wet work, 
And if you don't make that decision, then you've already made a decision. Mm. And your decision is, I'll, I'll end up mediocre. Yeah. I wonder how much of though what we do is where we try to bring people together is based on a massive assumption that everybody's ready when they're not. And, and I always thought what reminded me of this was, as you were talking, was a situation I had years ago. I was, uh, I had turned 40 at the time and not that I was ever great at playing football, by the way, I wasn't. But somebody invited me to a, a, a seniors game one night, seven aside. So I showed up, long story short, got a savage kick in the back of the leg before we finished. Next day, I'm hobbling around the house. So I find this old crutch stick in the house that I'm using just to support myself as I hobble around. My office at the time was just a converted garage that looked out over the front of the house. So I'm there on the computer, stick is beside me, and these two guys come to the front door dressed really nice. And my wife answers, and a few moments later I see them walk away again, no drama, everything's fine. And then I see them go to another house across the road, and they're Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Mormons, they're, right, they're, they're, they're preaching the good word somewhere. So I think, here's these guys who are going from door to door to door and all they're getting is rejection every single where they go. There's no drama, they just move on to the next one. I thought, I gotta talk to these guys and find out what their secret sauce is. <laughs> so, Cause I was probably, when I say I was working on my computer, what I was really doing was avoiding picking up the phone which was beside the computer. So I get up, right, go out and, and I'm standing at the door and, I, and now I'm hobbling across the road and I realize as I'm shaking the stick in the air to kind of say, hey guys, guys, guys. <laughs> And the two, two of them turn around and go white. <laughs> and so I go over and uh, <laughs> I shouldn't admit to this, but this shows my, my, my ignorance. They had little name badges on. And the first one was Elder Johnson. And in, in my naivety, I think Elder was his first name. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, hey, Elder. And I explained the situation that I'd seen them go on. I'd said, look, I can imagine there's other neighborhoods you go into that maybe, uh, you know, the, the reaction you get might be, there might be a little bit more drama in it, for example. I said, how do you do this? And these are guys who, they save up, they do second, third jobs for sir, years so they can come to Europe or wherever in the world for two years. So they're, they're, they're paying to go door to door every single day getting abuse or at least getting rejected, it's the most simplest level, getting rejected. I said, how do you do it? And I'll never forget what he, he said. He said, they're just not ready. And I thought it was such a simple way of internalizing it. And he's true, they're just not ready for, for whatever reason. And there's myriads of reasons why they might not be ready, but they just looked at it. It wasn't rejection that they were getting. They're just not ready. And, and, and that, what reminded me of that point was that where you said, look, you might have heard something 14 times, or it might have been said to you 14 times beforehand, but only in this moment because of a confluence of whatever. Maybe it was just a tension, or maybe you'd had a prior experience that maybe this message resonated with you now where it hadn't before. I mean, how many times have we said you listen to the best of Sander life, and every single time you hear something that you didn't hear before? We've all had that experience. And I, and I wonder if collectively 
in terms of sales leadership, we should be more aware of the readiness factor that not everybody's ready. And sometimes our job is to stoke the readiness, to, 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 to light the spark, to create the fire, uh, rather than throw stuff into the fire when it's, when it's not quite ready yet. That's, I guess I'm throwing it out as a question. Yeah, I think I, I mean I, I I think it's a great idea, right? What are we doing to uh, facilitate readiness? Um, you know, and, and and maybe the first thing is, you know, you talk about stoking the fire. Did I ask you whether or not you were cold? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it just reminded me because I remember years ago there was when I was working with this company and every month they would bring together new hires and they were from all over Europe. So you'd have, and not just Europe, Africa as well. So you had people coming from South Africa, you had people coming from Norway and every 10 minutes you'd have the air conditioning in the room set to a particular level. But if it was set to say 70 degrees, mild, you know, nice, 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 but kind of room temperature, uh, 75, whatever, that, that would be um, 2022 for us. And, uh, but somebody would always be unhappy. It was either too warm for one or too cold for the other. And, and, and to me, that reminds me of that, is that it has to be just right for you. And, yeah, and, maybe, and, and you've got to be ready for it. That's right. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Tell me, in terms of the kind of issues that, if, let, me, let me ask you this way. If you had an hour with a group of sales leaders, bearing in mind they're going to have their own specific scenarios and situations and experiences, but you had an hour with them where you could impart some, not impart, you could help them to tackle an, an issue that was relevant to sales leadership and supporting their teams. What would you spend that hour on? What would you say, here's something that's of high impact that seems to help most people that can make a difference? So, you know, I, I, I tend to maybe oversimplify things and, and most definitely will always lean back on Sandler. I think the place that I would lean back uh, first, Paul, is in managing people's belief systems, right? And 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 fundamentally taking the hour to really work through what what non-supportive belief systems am I as a leader carrying around about my people? What non-supportive belief systems am I allowing my people to carry with them about their marketplace? And what can I do to change those, right? And 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 not you know, a magic wand waved over your head or a Jedi mind trick that says no longer have this negative belief, uh, but really understanding, you know, the source of where our beliefs come from, right? And, and, and the source of our beliefs are, you know, years, decades of experiences. Mm. But I think, you know, and so, you know, you know, I don't believe my person is motivated. I don't believe my person is coachable. I don't believe... Right? We're all carrying around negative belief systems. I don't believe you know, they're committed to being successful. I don't believe they can be like me. Think of that belief system for a minute, Paul. Right? If I, as a leader, look at my team and say, none of them will ever be as good as I was in their role. Right? That's a non-supportive belief system which 
causes a judgment, and that judgment is, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can say to ever have them perform at the level that got me to where I'm at. So my actions are, I'm going to be frustrated, I'm going to be critical, I'm not going to coach, I'm going to rescue. Right? The results are, nobody gets as good as, if not better than me. What does it make me do? Reinforces my belief and say, see, I told you so. I'm the best there ever was. Mm. And, and, mm. and so if I were to spend a time, you know, an hour with a, with a group of leaders, it would be to get them to challenge their belief systems, right? Can we debunk the myths in our head that are causing us to not be as effective as a leader as possible? And so, you know, for me, it's always going back to that doom loop, that belief wheel. And, and you know, when we were children, I know when I was a child that I believed that a, a, a little winged sprite would leave money under my pillow when I lost a tooth. Mm. And then when my, my kid, when my first child lost his first tooth, I realized there was no winged sprite. It was actually me, right, that had to leave that money under, you know, I was, you know, so, but, yeah. but it, you know, and it's a little silly, but think of all of the things that we have believed in, the, in our lives that in some way, you know, silly things like the tooth fairy, more important things, right, like, you know, you know, you know the downturns and recessions. What beliefs have we had that were simply proven wrong? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know what you've heard over the years in terms of belief systems coming out of the mouth of somebody else, or maybe yourself, but certainly you'll hear, you tend to notice more of others uh, that surprised you the most. I I'll go first to give you an example of what I'm, I'm talking about. I was in a class years ago, and this guy said that he believed that all CIOs, Chief Information Officers, were assholes. All. And I said, what has led you to this conclusion? And he said, well, of course they're assholes. You don't get to be a senior person in an organization without walking over other people and exploiting them. That was his belief. And that shocked me, that he would have come to that conclusion with no evidence or circumstantial at least, or, or, or not looking at counter evidence to say, okay, maybe I had a bad experience with one, but what about this, this, and this, and all these other wonderful people who are not like that, who've worked hard to get where they are. But I think at some level that allowed him to get away guilt-free from the fact that he hadn't climbed that high in the organization, mm -hmm. right? And, and allowed him to kind of rationalize it by saying, well, of course I didn't get that high because I'm not an asshole. And so, but, but it certainly did, it did, it did, I still remember it to this day. And I was curious to know if you've ever come across anything like that, that kind of, you went, what? Well, I mean, I think it's so easy for us to be objective when people say things that sound ridiculous. Like, you know, I mean, I know I've said things out loud that upon saying them, I went, well, that's ridiculous, right? But it doesn't mean that I still don't feel it, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, now that I've heard it, I can at least objectively go, that's maybe one of the dumbest things that anybody could ever say out loud, but I still doesn't mean that I don't, in my gut, I'm not feeling that, right, the yeah. impact of that. I'll tell you the one that really, I'm not going to say surprised me, Paul, but really concerned me was March of 2020. I had a lot of, I mean, we heard a lot of people say, you know, Sean, it's pretty unethical to have your sales hat on right now. And, and that one... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's immoral, it's tone deaf, it's unethical. And, and I thought, man, what a, what a damaging record. Right? And, and again, wow. I, you know, because you feel that, 
doesn't mm. mean that what you're feeling isn't what you're, you're feeling it, right? I can't make you not feel that. Boy, the unintended consequence to that is terribly you know, damaging to all people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really looking at, mm. I mean, maybe the most ethical and moral thing mm. we as salespeople could have been doing was being in sales mode. Mm. But is that not then just really highlighting some other belief that somebody else had that sales meant sales means that you're exploiting somebody sales sure. means that you're taking something and it's a net zero game and somebody loses yeah and, and and i think it became just another layer or advancement of nobody likes salespeople. Salespeople are rude they're pushy they're sneaky they're right i just got mm. to throw this one on top of it right and and now it became mm. extra justification for not making the phone call, not asking the tough question, not doing the follow-up, right? It became one more, in, in, in a person's mind, legitimate reason to avoid difficult tasks of sales. Yeah, yeah. Sean, we're almost up on time. What I'd like to do is suggest that the next time we speak, we can kind of break this down. Now we kind of, we, we, we've set some I guess, guidelines and concepts that are important in, in, in leadership. Then to break that down into areas that people can look at in terms of, okay, all of this is important. Here's what I've got to do. I've got to find the right people. And I've got to be able to get the right people consistently in. Then, then once I do, so when I say the right people, people who are open to learning, people who are not just willing to learn new stuff, but implement it as well, and who are not afraid to challenge themselves. So they're an open book, they're a sponge. And then once, I, once I've got them on boarded, and what does that process look like, is how do I bring together disciplines like training, like coaching and mentoring, to take them on a journey and learn from them as well. But there's, we're looking at it from, from the path, if you like, through the organization so that we, you, you almost make yourself redundant because at the time they're, they're ready, we're back to that concept again, to move on, is that they're in a better place, you're in a better place, and everybody wins. And I'd love to be able to kind of break down that journey, that process with you and look at, what are some of the best practices, do's and don'ts, tips, processes, etc., that will kind of help people to... Because everybody else is, is in the same boat. As we come out of this thing, we're looking at, okay, we still need, we still need to hire people, we still need to onboard them. We all have those challenges. And, and of course, how we traditionally did that changed utterly in terms of... I've, I've, as I'm sure of you, I've spoken to many managers, leaders, having these kind of conversations that I said to me, you know, Paulie said, I, one the guy the other week said, I have seven or eight people on my team whom I've never met. He, and he's hired them. Yep. Never physically got to meet them. I know what it was. I was asking people, you know, what would you like to do when, when all these restrictions relax and things open up? What, what would you like to do? He says, I'd like to meet my team and <laughs> get to know them on a personal level. So you, so you have this environment. And of course, that's going to change again. I know Matt Nettleton, our colleague, put up a post the other day and he talked about now the challenge we're going to have is getting back and getting comfortable with meeting people face to face again. And what does that look like? Do, do I offer my hand to shake hands? 
Do I stick an elbow out? You know, stupid stuff that we might yep. trivialize, but can actually make for an awkward situation. There's a lot of that kind of things that we need to, I mean, I know that's at a very kind of in the weed, simple level, but certainly big picture. I'd love to talk to you again. About yeah, love, love, love to be part of it. I simply know now that you've reminded me, I'm going to have to start brushing my teeth every day. Who knew? <laughs> it is so true. The beautiful thing about cameras, I, look, I can see you, you've got, I don't know, you've got, well, you're, you're a real man, so it's probably two days growth on your face. It would take me months to get to that level. I, I, I'm beard envy. <laughs> but what I've noticed is that I can now get away without shaving every single day because the camera is never picking up on that. It's just ever so I can miss a little bit here and it's okay. Yeah, things that I would have panicked about in the morning, kind of go, nope. oh, I never shaved, right? Now we're gone, who cares? <laughs> All right, my friend, I'll let you go. I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, Sean, massive pleasure. Thank you. Hey, great time. Appreciate it, Paul. Thanks.